What in the World podcast is produced in partnership with the Diversity and National Security Network. Visit www.diversityandnationalsecuritynetwork.com. Check out other episodes of What in the World wherever you listen to podcasts and go to our website, whatintheworldpodcast.com, where you can check out previous episodes and read up on lots of information related to global politics. This episode was recorded on April 19th, 2020, and thankfully since then, toilet paper has been restored. Enjoy the show. What is up, everyone? Welcome to What in the World, your home for understanding global political issues and, of course, why it all matters to you. If you don't know, I am your host, Bumi Akinasotu. I know you are tired of hearing about COVID-19 and all the doom and gloom uh, that's coming with it. I, for one, am right there with you. However, it's hard to not talk about the very obvious elephant in the room and the economic implications uh, that this pandemic has had and will have on the world and certainly uh, those of us living in the United States. Now, I am not an economist. I barely got through economics in grad school, but I've been checking out articles um, and also just observing personal things happen in my life. And I've been wondering, like, what does COVID mean for America's influence in the world? And, you know, I know we're all concerned about the unemployment rates. That's very real, um, not to minimize that. But there are lots of other challenges um, that we and our elected officials and companies um, and certainly others around the world are going to have to address at some point point. So there is no way I could explore sort of the economic position of America without someone whose expertise and perspective I, I wholly respect, and that is Yaya Fanusi. So let me tell you just a little bit about how cool Yaya is. Yaya uh, is a former CIA analyst uh, who currently focuses on U.S. national security and financial technology. He's briefed President George W. Bush on terrorism threats. Um, And now here's some made-for-TV stuff about Yaya. He advises financial institutions and tech companies on how to address money laundering and terrorist financing risk. And that, to me, Yaya, sounds um, like this show I watch on Netflix called Ozark. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You're you're Ozark character. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's funny because I actually have not watched it, although um, I hope my wife doesn't mind to mention she's been binging it recently. So, um, yes, but it has come recommended. So uh, Yaya is well written um, and you can find his work in many, many notable publications such as Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, New York Times. Um, he is the econ geek. Um, I, I am not. Uh, but one thing we do have in common Um, is our love of podcasting. He too has a podcast called Rhythm of Wisdom, and it uses storytelling to blend culture and national security themes. And I tell you, it's one of the most um, well-mixed, beautifully produced and presented podcasts I've listened to, and I listened to quite a bit. Um, Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. Uh, So great to be here. Thank you for having me on the show. So you have such an amazing background, and I didn't even get a chance to go through all all of the things. Like you're from Cali, um, like you lived abroad. Um, just give us a little bit of a, a, a overview of like why you were drawn to this 
sort of world of of national security? Well, I think it probably starts with just who I am and and my background. I think I've been global minded, international affairs minded uh, on some level since I was six, I guess. Um, you know, I was like you said, I was born and raised in California. Uh, but my my father's actually from West Africa. He's from Sierra Leone. Uh, my mom is is from here, from the states. And when I was six, we went to live in Nigeria for a year. My dad, uh, you know, good finished- choice. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. Um, but yeah, I mean, so here I there I was in I guess second grade or something. I don't know, six or seven, I forget. But but um, yeah, I lived for a year in in Nigeria. And fish out of water, but it was, you know, an early experience. I just was, you know, I was with the Nigerian kids. And, and then we came back um, after a year and, you know, I was back in California and and I was just, I think, aware of life outside of the United States. By the time I got older, you know, high school, then going to college, um, I was automatically thinking, actually, I was thinking a lot about Africa. I mean, I had spent uh, my whole life in the United States, except for that one year. And I had, you know, I wanted to, you know, not only reconnect with my roots, but, you know, I was really concerned about African economic development. Um, I did a, 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 one, a one summer research project in Zimbabwe, um, you know, and then I, after college, I, I did the Fulbright and I went to Ghana for a year and I was doing a lot on education. And uh, when I went to, then I went to grad school in international affairs. So I was pretty much thinking that, um, you know, I wanted to work in a way that was going to, um, you know, that was going to bring development. I was really focused on development on the time. Africa was a key focus. Um, and I've traveled to other places, but but because of my background, you know, that's been a strong part of what I've, you know, what, you know, what, what made me. How did you end up briefing President George Bush? I think that's so cool. Yeah, that was that was a great experience. So, um, you know, long story short, I joined the CIA. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I feel like there's no way to do a short story on that. But, you know, I I found my way um, to the CIA. I was hired as an economic analyst. And then um, then I started covering terrorism. You know, I became a counterterrorism analyst, even though I was not you know, I didn't go to school to learn about, you know, terrorism or counterterrorism. But when I was at the agency and I started to see all the all the national security issues, I started to think about, man, you know, I really want to do something uh, on the terrorism front or the counterterrorism front. And um, and then I, I volunteered to go to the National Counterterrorism Center. I was assigned there and um, and I was focused on Al Qaeda threats, particularly to the homeland. And at one point, this was in 2008. You know, President Bush came and they wanted analysts to brief him. Again, I was looking at threats against the United States. I was looking at how Al Qaeda was influencing things here in the United States. And I was one of the analysts that um, that briefed him at that briefing. It, it, and this plays out um, in your podcast a lot and some of the experiences you had. But what led you to start Rhythm of Wisdom? You know what? I just like that creative process. That's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, I can give you like all the reasons behind it, but honestly, <laughs> um, college, I was always a creative person. I had a radio show in college. I was really into music, poetry, spoken word. Um, and that sort of died down, you know, it dies down when you, you know, graduate, get a job, mm-hmm. have a family, you don't, you know, start adulting. <laughs> exactly. You know, I've been adulting for so long. And at one point, <laughs> um, 
you know, at, you know, I was really thinking about, you know, I really want to get back into my creativity and I don't have a lot of time and I can't like, you know, I wasn't going to write a, a big book or perform. And then I discovered podcasts, you know, in like 2014, when podcasting really got real, real big. I was one of those people like many that started listening to more podcasts. And I said, mm. well, why don't I you know, put together something? And so it was that creative urge. But the other side of it was, I also felt that I had a story that I wasn't hearing. You know, there's a lot of talk, especially in DC, right? In the DC area, everyone talks about national security. But one thing about me is I always felt like the narrative about national security is often very stale. And I felt like my experience was, I mean, it was an experience as a person. And I never read or heard stories about the the inner journey, the personal inner journey as well. And so the podcast is an attempt to, to give that, to give my story, my background. I wanted to, I didn't see it. So I thought I should produce it. Yeah. And I love that. That's the same. That's similar to why I started this show. It's just like, I was like, I am so tired of hearing a podcast or reading an article that's just so stale. And you're like, are these people humans? Are they robots? Like what is going on? Um, And folks like you, when I I certainly, when I, when I, I don't know how I came across your podcast, but certainly when I listened to one of them, I was like, oh, this is amazing. Like crazy. I wish more national security experts sounded as cool as you. (laughs) It's this guy. (laughs) So we're here talking about this sort of economic implications, the economic impact that COVID is going to have, not just on the world, but the United States. And and as you know, um, my question for this series is, is America dead? Are are we relevant? Are are we going to be as influential um, as we were um, before this? And, And what are some of the factors? What are some of the issues that we now have to face in this this? pandemic world that we're in. One of the topics that I think is important for us to tease apart before we start talking about COVID is the concept of globalization um, and some basic, basic economic principles. Globalization, you know, is the idea that, you know, countries need each other to exchange goods, services, products, whatever it is, and that each country um, is supposed to be producing the things that they produce well and send it out to the rest of the world and everyone's supposed to hold hands and it's supposed to be all great and wonderful, which is not, but we know this. There are rules, there are expectations, there are agreements. There's history behind some of the ways that we do things, why we interact with, for example, the World Trade Organization. All of these things, though, require us to exercise our political muscle. So how does our economic influence as a country mesh with our political influence? Well, obviously, they are definitely intertwined, right? Economic influence and political influence. One, you know, it depends on how we're looking at the influence. There's the influence, which is sort of the positive influence, positive meaning um, because you have economic influence, you're able to maybe influence how things happen either on the, on the world stage, right? You inf- influence things economically and politically. There's also uh, financial influence where you can correct or deter or, you know, make things happen as punishment, financial coercion. Um, And that has been, in terms of the United States, the way of the world for the past, what, almost, you know, 70 years, 70 plus years, 
um, the United States has had tremendous political influence because of its economic influence, right? We, we came into a world after World War II where um, pretty much the world power before that, uh, Britain was, you know, on the decline economically, um, and the United States was on the ascendance. The world that we have had has been a world where the financial system has really been inter- intertwined with America. American banks, right, have had the most influence in the global financial system. So what that has meant is that um, uh, American law, American political influence, right, has been able to influence or impact access of other countries. And right. in in the sense of right, if 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 a country does that now, you've I know you've done a program on sanctions, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so so we don't need to get get into that, but right. Uh, but but the the key there is that you know if we're thinking about today and how the world is evolving, there are a lot of things now that are that are in question. Um, there are folks question whether sanctions have been overused. There are even partner countries that are that are wondering if if you know the United States you know perhaps is being a little bit too overzealous with its sanction sanctioning of Iran, for example. Um, and so we're getting to a stage where countries are looking for alternatives. They're looking for ways around the American banking system. They're looking mm-hmm. for new technologies so that a country can still transact if they have sanctions put on them. So we're right. we're in this state. We're in this sort of era. And I think COVID nineteen. We can get into this. You know, COVID nineteen provides an uh, sort of almost a resetting in many ways mm. where. Even government, even, you know, not necessarily U.S. adversaries, you know, even the U.S. is rethinking not its financial system, but is rethinking the efficiency of its payment system. So we're at an interesting time when uh, a lot of notions about how money should work, how money should move, how trade, uh, you know, how trade should be managed. A lot of these things are now brought into question by political and economic, um, for political and economic reasons. So we're at sort of this, this transition point. I want to go back to sort of this um, point in time, way back 70 years ago, where the UK was on decline. And so we had to have a new way of thinking about the global economy, thinking about the world. Would you say that we're sort of in that same moment as 70 years ago? There are parallels. I wouldn't say exactly the same because um, you one, you know, the UK. So just you know, think, you know, put on your your Back to the Future. Um, uh, <laughs> yes, hat. my favorite movie. <laughs> you know, get, get in the get in the DeLorean and let's go yes. back to Back to the Future, nineteen, you know, forty four. <laughs> uh, you know, so, so back then, what was happening? I mean, you, first of all, the, the U.S. was growing. I mean, for for decades, the U.S. you know its economy was 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 growing. But uh, what had happened in the world was where you'd had two world wars. Uh, and and the war, World War II, had really, uh, you know, Britain was really damaged economically and in other ways by that war. And so, you know, the U.S., you know, what, what did, I think it was Condi Rice who, who, who said, you know, uh, we, we might be late, but then we when we get in, we really do something. Well, we were late. <laughs> you know, we were kind of late getting in the game, but, uh, but you know, we got into the game of World War II. And, and again, we're lending money, we were lending money to, to Britain. What happened at that period was 
really the U.S. and the U.K. got together and said, look, you know, let us develop, you know, the war is coming to an end. Um, there had already been theories about how the economy should be managed, the global economy should be managed. And, you know, these two countries got together and said, let's set up a system, system of institutions, a systems of, of way of dealing with trade, of, of uh, exchange rates. Um, that system has pretty much been in place. And it's been one in which the U.S. has had a really the dominant power and the dominant influence. Mm-hmm. Now, is that what where we are now? So I think there's something I would say no, we're not where where we are. Where we are now is we we do we are what the parallel is that there are um rival states. China is a growing rival, economic rival, its economy is growing. Um, but there there are still some things that the United States has, influence that it has, that just because China has a growing GDP does not mean that it's going to necessarily eclipse or have a, a influential role in the financial market. The thing that has sort of set America apart and that continues to set it apart is, you know, America, you know, is is a place where people want to come right? Mm-hmm. To establish a business. They want to come to settle. They want to come. Right. There's protection of, of individual rights, property rights, patent rights. You know, it's really an environment where you're going to go to innovate. Not to say that there's not innovation happening all over the world, but right. there's something very special about what, what the United States has. And that I don't think is necessarily being, it's not, well, there are threats to it, but, you know, it, you know, America is still relevant in that because, you know, mm-hmm. we're a place where people want to come. Productive, innovative people want to come because there's there's an op- greater opportunity here. Right. What you what you've started to do um, is sort of show how different political systems make for different economic environments. China is a it's a communist country. There are rules in place that don't allow for people to sort of do what they do, for example, in the United States, which is a, a democracy. And so people can come here and start a business or participate in the media, like do a bunch of different things and trade yeah. with other countries and all of that. Glad you asked, like, is this the same as what happened 70 years ago? Because I, I like that, that ver- you know, it's, it's a biblical verse, right? That's always paraphrased. There's nothing new under the sun. In the book of Ecclesiastes. Yes, but anyways, I digress. <laughs> I think that fits so much with any of so much of the the things that we look at because there's this especially in Washington right there's this sort of this urge you know especially I think in the United States right we don't have a very long memory so we're always thinking yeah. about the past decade or two but when you really think and the question about globalization itself right I mean a lot of most of what we see happening there is a parallel to human history um, and so we can really look at that and see that these are these are these are not new problems or new right. dynamics these are the same dynamics as as before so would you say then that it's a fair assessment that globalization gets such a bad rap? Globalization is the reason why populism, racism, inequalities, all these things. Would you say that's a fair assessment? I would I would say that that's unfair. Uh, and that's not to say that globalization hasn't been problematic or had its downsides. But here's here's the thing. When you're dealing with all of these, you know, any sort of system of of you know economic activity, right? You're, you're, we're talking about imperfect systems. Um, there's there's no sort of this you know utopian system that we're just going to put in place and and everything is going to be worked out. Globalization in terms of people, you know, exploring, people wanting to trade, people trying to lower barriers, right, so that they can have an interdependent 
you know, economic life. Um, that sort of has been with us throughout history, right? So that's that's globalization as it has always, and you could say we've always had globalization. I think what people are pointing out is they're pointing to restrictions in trade that have um, hurt domestic industries, right? They've put jobs overseas because, you know, these traders and these, you know, business people, they make the calculation that, hey, okay, I got cheap labor here, right? So those are the critiques. This is, this is what I would say. I would say that I don't think you can blame necessarily just the, the, the people doing trade and the business people. I know that for decades, people were saying, look, if, if the economy is being globalized and we're competing with China uh, or India or whatever, we need to make sure our educational system is up to speed. You know, so that's just one example, not to say it's their fault or anything. I'm just saying that there has been its disconnect. So yeah, maybe the globalists went too far. Maybe the globalists had this, you know, this, this philosophy that didn't really fit and that left many of us out in the cold, many people out in the cold. Yeah, there was probably some of that. It's easy to do a trade deal, Right. It's it's a lot harder to say to really look at a Youngstown, Ohio. Right. Just to pick some sort of a random city. Um, Shout out to Youngstown, though. No judgment if you're listening from Youngstown. But seriously, you know, I mean, but, you know, there are lots of communities that that it's harder to to try to solve this problem. It's harder to 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 try to invest and and look at the opportunities and to and to rebuild. So again, I'm not leaving folks off the hook, but I'm just saying I don't think you can stop globalization, but what you can do is you can get your economy, get your education, change the, you know, change the environment so that you're able to compete in a way that um, maybe right. you weren't competing before. And I would add maybe address your healthcare system so that people are healthy enough to learn and healthy enough to work <laughs> to begin with. Because um, if people aren't healthy, then uh, there's no point. So, yeah. You've neatly sort of walked us through some historical points, some some examples. You've gone into the, the flying DeLorean here. We've gone back. Um, we've sort of looked at some of the political factors to consider. We've looked at sort of your argument is is you know, well-received about globalization, that it's very complex. So here we are dealing with um, lots of questions about what is America going to come out of this looking like? What is our economy going to look at? You are looking at this from a different angle. You're looking, you and other um, economists and others in your field are looking at this from the perspective of national security. And specifically looking at how criminal behavior might jeopardize our economic system. Your, your area of expertise is around illicit finance. Um, and this is, might be a scary term for some people, but yeah, you guys going to break it down for us. Don't worry. Describe the concept of illicit finance and the concern um, in terms of America's safety. You know, illicit finance is you know moving money you know that comes from illicit means. You know whether illegal activity, um, terrorist financing, you know drug money, drug deals, uh, corruption, wildlife trafficking. Right? There's a whole. There are these whole you know often underground economies um, that uh, you know th- that that's just. It's the way of the world, right? It's crime. That just stuff, that stuff exists. Um, what we're thinking about in the COVID nineteen era is 
well, how does this pandemic impact illicit finance? Does it worsen it? Does it give illicit actors, criminals, whether they're cyber hackers, um, you know, uh, prolif- nuclear pr- proliferators from North Korea, um, you know, terrorists, you know, trying to smuggle funds and launder funds? Does it give them new opportunities? What what does it do? One, there's on the short term, you're going to have you know, fraud, obviously, because you have, what do criminals do? They are opportunists. (laughs) They're very, they're great opportunists. Opportunists. They're opportunities to con people. People are, you know, uh, you know, vulnerable right now. So that's one thing that's going on. But the other thing is methodology or typology of illicit finance. Typology, you know, the different sort of tried and true methods that illicit actors use. And one thought is that this pandemic, you know, provides the opportunity for them to change and adapt their methods. First of all, just targets. Think about this. We've moved from a world where, you know, most transactions are in person to now we're in a world where most transactions are happening virtually. Uh, Work is happening. So work transactions, meetings, everything. So think about this. Here's one good example. There's this new phenomenon that maybe you've heard of called Zoom bombing. Uh, I've heard too much about it. I'm on like my 29th, my 29th Zoom call in a, like two days. Okay, I'm tired of the Zoom. <laughs> but but Zoom bombing, right? Is this you know you're you're having people basically crash Zoom Zoom meetings and disrupt them and you know put all types of bad stuff on the 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 like chat chat in the chat rooms and stuff. Um, so that's an annoyance. It's disruptive, but it points out that hmm. If I'm an illicit actor, that actually means that I have the opportunity to exploit the fact that now people are conducting business um, online in maybe an insecure environment. So now you're going to have more targeting, possibly. You're going to have illicit actors, whether they're state actors, targeting our virtual communications or trying to exploit economic espionage, right? I mean, I like to use this example of, now think about this. Typically, employees, you know, they're all talking usually in person. And of course, they'll do some online meetings and conference calls. But now we're moving to an era where pretty much throughout the day, your business activity, right? All your work meetings, they're all through Zoom. They're all virtual. So let's say I want to do economic espionage. Let's say you're, you're a government person and I want to infiltrate. Now, my target is not to try to get a spy into the organization necessarily and to, to tap your, uh, you know, to get inside the organization's walls and to get in the building, right. get a fake pass. No, I just need one person who has access to their Zoom and I need to infiltrate that way. So it's just the idea that now there, there are different opportunities um, for that illicit actors are going to use. And the other thing is that, you know, we're, we're also coming to a point where there are changes, there are shifts that are happening in, in, in finance, in payments. A lot of people don't know when the the first bill or the draft of the the, the CARES Act to bring um, you know economic relief from the, right. from the pandemic. This is the two trillion dollars. Yes, so, right. Yeah. Well, one of the early drafts it had it had a um, sort of a resolution to provide something called Fed accounts, where an account would be basically made where everyone would directly have an account at the Federal Reserve. And the idea was that there was, you know, I think the thinking behind it was, okay, if we're going to give people this money, we got to get it to them quick. So the idea was that it would be more efficient if everyone just had an account at the Fed. Now that didn't make it. Who would even know how to access it, right? Like it's not like something, it's not like accessing like a Bank of America, is it, right? Like you don't just like walk up to the federal bank and be like, hi, I'd like exactly. to collect my $1,200. Exactly. But the thing was that 
there was definitely a need and people were admitting that we don't have a good, like efficient sort of payment system. I mean, we have one, but it really hasn't changed that much over the past few decades. So right now there's going to be a lot of um, discourse, but also research in new methods of, of payments, new types of new ways of doing um, a fi- of, of financing, new ways of, of bringing, of moving money. And that's happening around the world. Most of the central banks in the world are doing research on how to digitize their currency. We're at a very um, sensitive, sensitive time right now. I'll say maybe one last thing, because you raised the issue of, of employment, unemployment. I think one of the things we're thinking about is that if COVID-19, if the virus is going to be around, most are saying it is going to be around for, you know, for a year or two. It's not going away. It's going to be part of us. So that means we're moving into this era where there are going to be some restrictions on our daily life. I right. actually think that we're, I think that you can say that what this is similar to, we're going to see something similar to what happened overnight after 9-11, which mm-hmm. was after 9-11, you, you saw our society shift and change in how we did things because of the security issue. It was something that no one could have ever thought. Um, I was just talking to a friend uh, talking about how we remember in college, because I went to college in the 90s. I, w- I remember going to Southwest. I would call Southwest. I would make my reservation. And then just a reservation, no credit card. <laughs> right? And I would show up to the airport, Southwest, the ticket counter, and I would give cash. And then they would let me on the plane. That's how you used to do it. Anyway, that changed, right? And so we made a lot of shifts in how we do things because of the security issue. And as a society, now it wasn't all happy and there were a lot of road bumps and you know, civil, you know, civil rights and civil liberties were, were right. issues, right? But we have sort of changed. We have a new normal. And everyone's talking about this new normal. The thing is, there's always a new normal. I think my biggest concern is that the way we do business. And the way we manage a lot of our economic activity is definitely going to change. And it's not going to be mm. something that that goes back to you know pre pre pre-COVID. Um, just like we never went back to pre-9-11. Mm. And so what does that mean for the for those who have lost their jobs first, for those businesses that are going to be struggling the most? It's 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 really um it's really a challenge because I think we have to start thinking about how are we going to adjust in this new environment? Because it's not the thing of the globalization argument that, that you were getting at in the beginning, right? It was it's often been this thing of, you know, the the anti-globalists will say, let's just bring back the manufacturing jobs. And of course, right. lots of people talk about how that's not just all possible. Um, and it, it, I think we're dealing with something similar. It's not, right. we're not going to be able to say, you know, have, uh, you know, hundred thousand, thousand, hundred thousand people in the stadiums, you know, you know, in a few months, we're not, I think we're going to, we're going to be moving to an era where social distancing is actually going to be built into so much of what we do. Wow. Okay. So we got to pause because this is really scary to me. <laughs> I got to breathe. <laughs> no, I but what I didn't think about is your parallel to 9-11, which is kind of genius. You hinted at the privacy issue. That was a big deal. And yet here we are. We're, we're by and large fine, but we had to evolve is what I is what I yeah. is what I hear you saying. The thing that gives me hope with your your very smart argument is that COVID also is an opportunity to evolve and it might hurt. We might have to deal with um, a lot of uncomfortable changes and concepts, but overall, like it is in fact a way for us to, to just sort of 
evolve to a, an economic system that, you know, is flexible enough or at least um, protected a, enough for things like a, a pandemic. <laughs> well, really, I mean, you said it, you said the word evolve. And, and I think a way to think about it is, um, you know, again, going back to that idea of nothing new under, under the sun in the sense mm-hmm. that things change, but as human beings, what do we sort of do? We just sort of adapt, right? We always right. have as social beings, we, we sort of, we always adapt and we adapt through technology, technological changes. We adapt through disease, disaster. Right. Um, um, but I think the sooner we think like that, the sooner we think, oh, there's definitely going to be a new normal. This is not just about the next few months. Like we need to start thinking about how the economy is going to be, how social conditions, how governments are going to interact. There's going to be less of in-person meetings. There are going to be restraints. There's going to be more of an emphasis on on medicine, on public health, on biotech, biotechnology. Right. Uh, right. We do need to second guess some of our economic ideas. You know, I mean, for example, here, here's this perfect one toilet paper toilet paper let's let's make this real oh lord (laughs) i see where this is going (laughs) the reason why there is no toilet paper still because even you go you're like okay come on now there's got to be toilet paper because you know the reason why is because um, what had gotten popular in the supply chain, you know, the system of, you know, of moving goods and goods through, through um, throughout the globe uh, was this thing called just-in-time inventory, where basically we created this really efficient system where you don't have like a big warehouse in the back of your store where you have all the supplies. And then, you know, when they, you know, you have so many supplies in your store, in your warehouse, um, we developed a system where the suppliers, they deliver it just enough. They, they have it so in sync so that just when you run out, then the, the next shipment comes. So you don't have to. So it's more efficient. Right. And people had been saying, like, well, what if something happens and, you know, there's a disruption? But people were like, no, this is just the best way. It's so efficient. This is this is great. It, it saves us money. Now we see one of the reasons why we don't have enough toilet paper is because of the supply chain is was, is built in a way where you don't have stockpiles at the store where things were so efficient that now when there's a clog somewhere and there's such demand and they can't produce like to create toilet paper is actually a very intensive economic uh, or manufacturing process so anyway that that all I, I just say that point to say that it's not always where we can just say getting back to your globalization issue we can't just say well this is economically efficient for the time being. So let's go with this. We can't say that, oh, it's cheaper to produce, you know, our masks and ventilators. In, right. you know, somewhere. It's cheaper. So we're going to do that. I think now, you know, it, it's become very clear that that we can't operate that way. So maybe this goes back to, you know, maybe I'm not trying to backtrack, but I'm just acknowledging that, um, yeah, there are some limits uh, or there's flaws in this totally this idea of everything free and and open uh, in terms of trade. There are some 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 flaws that have to be worked out there. COVID is definitely sort of forcing us to to work out the flaws. And I do want to go back to this illicit financing concept. You know, one of the things that's in, intriguing to me is what you said, which is like there are people who are, you know, operating in different spheres, uh, operating in different spaces um, that will see this pandemic as an opportunity to target different populations or target different institutions. What I need is maybe just another connection to the national security issue, because this is what my this is what my brain says. Like, this is how my brain interprets what you said. It says like, okay, you know, there are these 
you know, bad people out there who beyond Zoom bombing, <laughs> you know, they're trying to maybe collect information or or transfer funds through back channels, all to, at the end of the day, take down America. Is that the the national security sort of angle with this? Like, is it is it at the end of the day about maintaining America's stand in the world and in our, our health, our economic health, our political health? There are so many parts to it. I think I'll just choose one. There's this idea of as the financial system evolves and changes, let me put it like this, people figure out different ways to do money, right? Money is done in a certain way through the banking system. It's not a, very, a natural sort of thing. It's like from years of you know different financial, just different, different ways of banking, right? Is a sort of evolved thing, very manufactured. Um, we've been using a system, the, the banking system works in a certain way. We understand how it works and America understands how to use it to its advantage, to use it to you know, to to punish or to try to prevent bad activity. But here's the thing. What happens when what we're seeing now is um, states try to come up with an alternative system so that they can still transact outside of American influence? China is actually coming up or is developing a digital currency. They're digitizing. They're, they're coming up with a system that's going to digitize their currency. Um, we don't know all about how it's going to work. But what it's what we can sort of assess, I think, right now is that um, there's probably going to be more surveillance or at least sort of more control over the payments and payment transactions of of the Chinese population. Um, and so think about this, right? In the Bretton Woods system, right? You know, America sort of established with the UK and other nations sort of, you know, gave their approval that this would be a new system and there would be certain norms, norms of rule of law. Right, norms, right. right? Right. So we're going to one thing that that we're thinking that I'm thinking about is um, so let's say there's this new system built with new technology um, and who puts the stamp on it? Who sort of says what the standards are for how the system should work? Like with America has very sort of clear ideals and clear standards, clear, you know, through our history, you know, uh, things are you know, there's a, a way of doing things. Um, other countries do not have those same priorities do not have those same you know they doesn't have don't have the same way of looking at rights at surveillance right. authoritarianism so what if there's a system that sort of um allows for uh, mm. authorities to to prohibit privacy to to invade privacy to stifle political activity political speech because it's right. a because in the Chinese, the, the sort of the, calcula the calculation from the Chinese Communist Party, hey, that's just all part of how you govern. Um, so, so you know, we're dealing with, again, not that it's going to happen overnight and all of a sudden some other country is going to displace America or displace the dollar. No, that, that's, that's not going to happen overnight. But we're, we are at a point where there, there are a lot of, um, uh, you know, there, there's this, uh, there are these currents of innovation that are happening in the, in the fintech sector and that the, the United fintech meaning the financial technology sector. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry for my, <laughs> no worries. <laughs> yeah. In the, you know, financial technology, financial technology is, is, um, there, there's a lot of innovation happening. And if the United States sort of is sort of resting on its laurels because, well, hey, we've got the, you know, the most powerful, you know, influence in the financial system. We don't need to worry about these newfangled, you know, whatever cryptocurrencies or digital currencies. If we have that stance, 
um, there is the possibility that we could get caught sleeping at the wheel because other nations mm. are innovating because they have incentive to. They want to break out of the 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 um the power and influence of the dollar. They want to get right. out of the banking system. If not, maybe not get out of the banking system because everyone that's where everyone does their business. But they want to find some alternatives so they're not beholden to the the global financial system in the same way. So we have to sort of be on guard and thinking about being involved in the evolution of the financial system so that we can bring our principles uh, to bear in the world. Thank you for connecting those dots. I've asked every single person um, so far in this series, in your opinion, given what we've discussed about globalization, about illicit finance and sort of the possible threats that are out there, is America dead? America is in no way dead. America is very relevant. You know, America is going to be relevant because because America has strengths that aren't going to just go away with a competitor. There are a variety of factors that make America in many ways, and again, this is not to overstate, but to say, you know, you've heard the term, have you heard the term, the Goldilocks planet? Have you heard that? No, what is that? So the Goldilocks planet, I might be over, I've just thought of this right now, so this might, this might not work, but why not? So the Goldilocks planet is the idea that um, Earth, the conditions are just right, right? Not too hot, not too cold, right? So just like Goldilocks with the porridge, not too hot, not too cold. Oh, got it. Okay. So the planet like Earth is just right. It has all the conditions to grow life. You know, for for there to be for there to be life, and um and 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 I say that America has had a lot of strengths. Um, it's like a a man a perfect storm of so many things. Um, you know, historically, just culturally, economically, geographically, so many factors that have allowed it to uh, become a very unique power. Um, and and strong a strong power and and, and I and I think those things don't go away. They don't go away with um, competition necessarily. They don't go away because the things that have have made America great, um, uh, you you can't just reproduce very easily. So. Right. I would say America is still relevant and will continue to be relevant as long as we're a place where other people um, value what we have, want to come here and want to invest in here. You've given me some hope again. Uh, <laughs> you've, t- you've walked me off the ledge um, <laughs> and yeah. you've uh, certainly given me a greater appreciation for these economic principles and around what sustains a country, what sustains our globalized world. So thank you, Yaya. Um, this has been a fantastic conversation. So how can people find you? They can find me uh, on Twitter. You know, uh, my name is Yaya. I use my middle initial J, Fanusi at SignCurve, S-I-G-N-C-U-R-V-E on Twitter and, you know, LinkedIn as well. I try to do stuff. And um, my podcast, Rhythm of Wisdom, the next iteration of the podcast, of my podcast, Rhythm of Wisdom podcast, is going to be uh, the introduction of a new spy hero. Uh, It's going to be a spy thriller. And so the story... Yeah, the storytelling is going to be about, um, it's going to be called the Jabari Lincoln Files. And the character of Jabari Lincoln is a CIA analyst. Um, he happens to be an African-American. He happens also to be a you know, Muslim um, analyst who's a, a, an expert in financial intelligence. Uh, he's worked terrorism cases. And he is an analyst who gets thrown into a very interesting predicament. 
and the story will sort of tell his uh it'll you know it'll be from from those files i cannot wait to hear about jabari uh, and his <laughs> files i cannot wait yeah yeah what is a song that is on your playlist these days that's keeping you in a good mood um, this artist named victory uh, her name is victory boyd but she has something on instagram recently where she during the pandemic she is at home with her her four siblings and they do this three minute rendition with the acoustic guitar uh the five of them singing um i'll be there the jackson five i'll, I'll oh, be there nice uh again uh, we uh, you know this work is not easy i know and in, in this time and there's a lot going on you have family responsibilities but i'm 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 just so glad that you took the time to share your knowledge and experience and your story with us um, on What in the World. Well, Boomi, thank you. You have been, it's been so great, you know, working, collaborating with you over the past few years. So, um, you know, I, I really appreciate it. This has been a great conversation and, um, you know, wishing all the best for you and for, for all the stuff you do. Awesome. Thank you so much, Aya. And thank you all for listening. I saw people that look like me Pray for equality While others believe in supremacy I saw my people